Acts chapter 18. As we press on in our series, The Advance of the Kingdom, this study in the book of Acts, finds Paul on another missionary journey. The trek continues now. He's left Athens and headed just a short distance to the city of Corinth. It's been called the Las Vegas of the ancient world, known for its decadence, its immorality. To Corinthianize was a verb to describe an immoral lifestyle. So well known was the reputation of this massive commercial city. Paul is there now to begin sharing the gospel. What we note in our text is that these missionary journeys have not been easy for Paul. I think at times we just assume Paul was this elite, kind of special forces Christian who's marching from city to city, proclaiming the gospel, beaten, stoned, it doesn't matter, he's invincible. So we picture, you know, explosions and smoke in the background, and out of that smoke comes the silhouette of a man walking slowly from Athens to Corinth. That's not what we find here. Instead, we hear Paul say, we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced. For we were utterly burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired of life itself. Paul comes to Corinth weary, of beatings, weary of rejection, discouraged by the weight of taking the gospel to dark places. And while we see him doing good things, the right things, sharing the gospel, going to the synagogues, and though we even see fruit from his labor, some are believing It appears that that isn't enough to keep him from discouragement so that the Lord has to come to him and say, don't be afraid. Our text shows us boldness in some ways. Verse 4, speaking the gospel. Verse 6, shaking out his garments as this expression of, I've told you the truth and if you don't believe it, that's on you. But that that bold action isn't really supported by quite the boldness of heart, as we'll see in a moment. Apparently, the thought of opposition in Corinth, another beating, another stoning, more rejection, was taking its toll on the apostle. Perhaps you've struggled to share the good news. Perhaps you've battled with fear the fear of that resistance you're going to get, the fear of the rejection, the awkwardness as they say, well, that's not for me, and you kind of walk away. Like Paul, perhaps you will be helped this morning by the anchor that God gives us in Acts chapter 18, an anchor for fearful hearts. Here's our big idea this morning. We must hear the Lord's encouragement to offset our fear in sharing the gospel. 
It's not enough to hear messages about sharing the gospel that perhaps maybe even make us feel a little guilty for not doing it. We need to hear the Lord's encouragement to offset that fear that creeps up on us in sharing the gospel. And that encouragement I want us to focus on is found in verses 9 and 10. When the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. We must hear the Lord's encouragement to offset our fear in sharing the gospel. Now let's think this through, beginning with this common hurdle. What is the common hurdle? Paul faced it and we face it. The believers all throughout scripture faced it and today we still face it. The reality is God's people have often struggled with fear. It sounds great. It sounds like we should have all the momentum on our side. Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But when we break the huddle and charge out to run the play, we're a little intimidated by the enemy across the line from us. And we get into the conflict and we realize it's hard. And while we should have that momentum, it doesn't always feel that way. God's people have often struggled with fear. God called Moses to the great task of being this picture of Christ, the rescuer, deliverer, the one to lead us out of bondage into the promised land. But he's afraid to go back. Joshua is commissioned to lead, again, as another figure of Christ, leading us all the way home to our inheritance. But he has to be told four times in one setting to be of good courage. Elijah has just defeated the prophets of Baal and called down fire from heaven. And he runs and hides in a cave and says he's afraid for what his enemies might do to him. David has the oil of the anointed king running down over his head and pretty soon is turned out into the wilderness and we read in his psalms of his fear that has to be overcome by his knowledge of who God is. How do we know in our text that Paul is afraid? Well, I've done a psychological analysis, right? No, it's much simpler than that because when we read to... His first letter to the Corinthians, he says exactly how he felt when he came to Corinth. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling. The text doesn't say it that clearly for us in Acts chapter 18. But I think we can start getting the sense when we remember what he's been through so far. He's coming to the most wicked city of the Roman Empire, and he's asked to share the gospel. And it looks like good news that the ruler of the synagogue has believed in his whole household, 
But all that really means is that he has really stuck his finger in the eye of the Jews. And they're mad at him. And we see that unfolding. They're going to go march to the authorities to get him in trouble. Paul knows this situation is ripe for another imprisonment in the stocks. he's, He's on track for another beating, if not a stoning. And the fear is creeping in. And, and he recounts that when he wrote that letter to Corinth saying, I, was, I came to you, but I was afraid. I was scared to death of what was going to happen. And I think we also know Paul is afraid because of the response that the Lord has to him in the vision by telling him, do not be afraid. So it seems quite evident that this common hurdle of fear is something that needs to be addressed in our lives. It's this common enemy of kingdom advance. Like Peter walking on the water, we're excited to share our faith. We've been studying it in Acts. We've been studying it in the equip hour. But like Peter, our focus is drawn away to the threats and the risk of failure, and the dangers, and fear weighs us down, and we begin to sink. That was happening to Paul. Peter sank in fear, walking on water, and here's Paul, who we think walks on water as this great evangelist, but he's sinking in fear. And in Peter's case, it was the literal hand of Jesus lifting him up, out of the ocean or the sea. In Acts chapter 18, it's the Lord's words to his servant that lift him out of this fear. So hear what God says. First, in the form of two simple instructions. They're there in verse 9. Do not be afraid is one instruction. Go on speaking is the other. Let's look at these. Do not be afraid. On your notes, I've put it this way. Stop being afraid. Now, this is one of those times where a little bit of understanding how the Bible was written, especially in its original languages, at least forces us to apply Scripture a little more specifically. Knowledge of Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek could be real helpful interpreting the Bible, but you are perfectly able by the help of the Spirit to read your Bible and know what it says in the English language. That's the, that's the doctrine of preservation. God has preserved His Word for us, and we can read it, and we can know what He wants of us. Once in a while, though, just understanding the very language it was written in is helpful. In the Greek, when you have the present tense of a verb, and it's a command. So a present tense command with a negative, the not. It could read, as it does in our text, do not be afraid. But if we were literal with the English translation, we would have to say, do not be being afraid, which sounds kind of redundant to us. To be being afraid isn't the way we speak. 
But how do we capture this ongoing fearfulness that we're not supposed to be engaged in? And the way we could translate this more normally in English would be, stop being afraid. So whether you think, do not be being afraid, or you say, the being afraid is ongoing, and the command is to stop that. It's helpful for us to understand Paul's mindset and ours at times. It's not just a distant future fear that you should avoid. Don't be afraid. It's kind of like we might tell somebody, hey, when you're going down Bly, when we dismiss after church, don't go too fast. There's a lot of cats crossing the road. One less after a few months back. Sadly. But that's future, right? When we say don't go too fast, we're, we're implying when we read that in English that it's future, it's yet to happen. But that's not what our text is saying. It's very present. Don't be afraid right now. Don't be being afraid. Don't exist in a condition of fear. In other words, stop being afraid. This is the simple instruction God gives. We don't need to fear. But let's face it, that's a hard command to see in action. How can you, how can you tell if you're not being afraid? What does that look like? Well, the scriptures tell us. Do not be afraid, but we're going to get a contrast the being afraid is one thing. It's going to be contrasted with something else. And what is it? Go on speaking and do not be silent. So keep on speaking. Go on speaking. It's said positively first. It's the opposite of being afraid. To speak out. Now sometimes we think we are speaking or speaking enough but to make sure we understand what it means to keep on speaking. We are told exactly what it means in the negative. Do not be silent. Because one could say, well, I'm speaking the good news to people. And what they mean is, well, last month I had something to say about it. But the text is saying, no, it's not just that you said something. It's that you're not being silent about the good news. You won't pipe down about it. Sometimes you just want people to stop talking. Just be quiet. In the car, maybe it's like, kids, can you just be quiet for a moment? Let's listen to a song. Let's play the quiet game, right? God's simple instructions, they go together. Stop being afraid, but the opposite of not being afraid is you're speaking the good news. And for clarity, that means you're never silent about the good news. They're simple instructions. Don't be afraid. Don't be quiet about good news. And now... I want you to see how God supports these two simple instructions. How does God encourage Paul that 
these two simple instructions are doable? How does he motivate Paul? I want us to look at these convincing reasons to not be afraid. Convincing reasons to not be silent. And they come in verse 10. The text is helpful because we see that word for a couple of times. Here's the why. Here's the reason. So don't be afraid and don't be silent. Reason number one that should convince us of these simple instructions is, for I am with you. The Lord appears to Paul in a vision and says, don't be afraid and don't be silent. The Lord knows the history of Paul's experience on his journey so far. He knows the hardships, the suffering, the pain, the rejection. He knows that. And he's coming to the servant to encourage him. And he gives him these instructions, don't be afraid. To which we think, how do I not be afraid? Look at what I'm facing. Don't be silent. Well, he hasn't been silent, but the fear's trying to choke out his voice. And here's how he can be convinced to speak out in faith and not fear. First reason God gives is his powerful presence. I am with you. You remember the Great Commission? Yes, we do. Go and be witnesses. But do you remember the convincing reason given for Obeying that commission, Jesus says, all authority is given to me. I can topple empires and kings. I can steer rulers, as he does in this text, to preserve and keep Paul safe. I can, I can overwhelm hearts with grace, as he did to Saul, the persecutor. Jesus says, all authority is given to me. Therefore, you go and be witnesses. It's echoed in Acts chapter 1. When the disciples there hear, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be witnesses. God's powerful presence is the motivation for us to not be afraid and to not be silent. And God's presence in our story has specific implications. Because what else does he say? I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. Now I say specific implications because that's not true for you and I all the time. That's not true for Paul all the time. People have attacked him and harmed him. But in this moment of discouragement, God is taking this broad truth that he never leaves us or forsakes us, and now he's adding a special promise to that to encourage Paul to begin his Corinthian evangelistic ministry. And he tells Paul, no one will attack you to harm you. That's for this story. At this point in Paul's ministry, he has this clear revelation that he will not be attacked. Hence, the next paragraph. Verses 12 to 17 are that story that even begins with that similar concept of attack. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul. 
God has just said, no one will attack you to harm you. And then we see it fleshed out. They try to attack him. They want, they want to beat him up. And what happens? The leader of the synagogue who was trying to prosecute Paul and fails to win over Gallio, they beat him up for doing a bad job. And it's kind of an ironic twist, but it's more than that. It's a clear demonstration of this promise of God to Paul. Listen, no one is going to harm you. This stop in Corinth is not going to be one that lands you in prison. Oh, it'll have its challenges. And people are going to reject and oppose, but they will not harm you on this visit. God's powerful presence. And we need to remember that God's powerful presence does not always mean we will never suffer some kind of harm. But it means that God is not only here, but that he is here in all of his ability, all of his power, and all of his desire to work all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We think of Elisha and his servant having that conversation when the servant stepped outside of the house and saw the Syrian army surrounding their little valley where the house of the prophet was. And Elisha prays that the servant's eyes would be opened, and when God answers that prayer, he sees these fiery chariots and flaming angels all around that circle of Syrians. And that, friends, is the definition of the words, I am with you. It's not just your best friend and there he is with his arm around you like, I'm just here. It's here in a readiness to display full power and authority. It's the flaming chariots. It's here to do whatever needs to be done. That's God's promise of being present. The first convincing reason for our evangelism is God's powerful presence. Do not be afraid and do not be silent. Why? Because I am with you. All authority is given to me. The power of the Holy Spirit is being given to you. The presence of God. The second convincing reason for our evangelism is God's sovereign election. And now we dive into theology proper. Figuring out these words, who God is, and, and what does it mean when we say he's in control of everything? Do we mean everything or do we mean most things? Do we mean he can steer kings and kingdoms, but he can't really save unless a sinner agrees with him? Or do we mean he's in charge of everything and he can do whatever he chooses? God says to Paul, do not be afraid, do not be silent, for I am with you, and the second reason, for I have many in this city who are my people. This isn't mere omniscience. People love to boast that God knows everything. They just don't 
want to grant him the power to do anything about it. This isn't just omniscience or foreknowledge. This is sovereignty. God in control of all things, including the salvation of sinners. God, remember, is encouraging Paul to keep sharing the gospel because he is with Paul and because there are many of God's sheep who have not yet been brought into the fold. Maybe it's simpler than this phrase, I have many in this city who who are my people. Maybe it's simpler to hear Jesus say it before this happened. Go back to John chapter 14. Again, a passage of encouragement. John chapter 10, rather. Jesus is unfolding himself as a good shepherd. And this is what he says, John chapter 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. There we are in Acts chapter 18. Other sheep not of this fold. Here we are in 2023 and there are still other sheep who are not of this fold. They might be that reprobate neighbor of yours or that coworker who is so entrenched in the world's way of thinking that Bible and church would be completely foreign to, any, to anything they're thinking. But you don't know who those people are, whom Jesus is saying, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Jesus said. And so he sends out his disciples. He tells them, you're witnesses. Give the good news. And yet, even great heroes like Paul are are just being beat down by circumstance and rejection and suffering and fear is creeping in. So what does God choose to say to him that's going to enable him to be strong and courageous? In his witness, he says, I'm with you and I have many sheep who are not yet in the fold. He's making it clear to Paul that he is still saving sinners, that the gospel still works. God's encouraging Paul to keep sharing because those sheep will hear and come to the shepherd's voice. Let me give you two corrective thoughts regarding God's election. Because if you study this yourself, your own mind will ask questions as you wrestle with it. And if you talk about it at all, these objections will come up. So I want to give corrective thoughts regarding God's election. Number one, election glorifies God. By that I mean the Bible doesn't apologize for election. Rather, the Bible celebrates it. The Bible doesn't defend God for his actions. The Bible doesn't pull us aside and say, I know God said election, but that's not really what it means. Like, he's not that kind of a God. No, instead the Bible keeps telling us, this is what the Father does. He pursues 
his enemies to the point that grace overwhelms them and they turn to Jesus in faith. The Bible highlights God's actions as mercy and love to those sinners who have rejected him. Election glorifies God. You see, after the fall in the Garden of Eden, when Romans 5 tells us, death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. The fate of humanity is set. No one will fellowship with God in eternal heaven or joy. So we could close our Bibles after the first paragraph of Genesis 3, And just know it's all over. There's no more story to be told. Everything else is just anthropology. It's just the study of how man made it through thousands of years. But God intervenes through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus. And God is glorified in the saving of any sinner. He gets the credit for every conversion. And Luke has just dropped hints along the way so that we wouldn't be alarmed when he records this story. He told us back in chapter 16 that the Lord opened Lydia's heart so that she believed. Again, remember, it glorifies God. It makes him look like a pursuing Savior. It's almost as if he had a lot of sheep, but there was maybe one lost and he went to find it. Almost like that, the Gospels would tell us that he pursued these sinners. Further back in chapter 13, we read that the Gentiles heard the gospel. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Or we could say, as many as were sheep, heard the shepherd's voice. It's not an easy concept to come to terms with if we ever come to terms with it. But it's a simple concept to hear from the pages of Scripture. So Scripture doesn't make it complicated. It says simple things like, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So that's that's simple in its expression, but it's not always easy in its comprehension. I acknowledge that. But rather than imposing on Scripture or on God the confusion or the conflict or the tension, let that rest with us and recognize we may always be grappling with this, but let Scripture be true and God be glorified in the salvation of anyone that comes to faith in Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. So I ask you, how are people saved? Answer, well, they come to Jesus in faith, in repentance. But who will come to Jesus? According to Jesus' words, all that the Father gives me. You see, oftentimes when election comes up, somebody wants to right away say, well, what about whosoever will? Mike, exactly. That's my point. Who will come to Jesus? 
Jesus answers that question. All that the Father gives. He repeats it a few verses later. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So again, we'd ask, how are people saved? Well, they come to Jesus. And who will come? Those whom the Father draws. That's not given to us so that we would be confused or drawn into tension. That's given to us so that we would glorify the God who saves his enemies and makes them his family. Throughout Old and New Testaments, God's election is designed to make him look good. And yet we have made this an issue that questions his character. What kind of a God would... That's what we hear, but that's not how the Bible presents it. If the Bible wanted to protect God from this dangerous topic, it just wouldn't have mentioned it. We would have discovered it in the end and been horrified as we appear to be now. Election glorifies God. That's a corrective that we must see in Scripture. So that when we see Genesis 3, they're driven from the presence of God. They are no longer his friends. They are enemies of God. They're in rebellion against his authority. They do not want him to be Lord. They think they can know what God knows. They'll just do it themselves. And the story seems like it's over. But the doctrine of election says, no, God reached out and saved sinners. And we must not balk at his love and mercy to do so. There's a second corrective thought that we must hear from Scripture, and it flows right out of this story. That is, that election fuels evangelism. Election fuels evangelism. It's clear in our text. God says, be encouraged, Paul. Don't be afraid and don't be silent. Be encouraged. Don't be fearful. I'm with you and I have many people that will be brought into the fold. Paul, the gospel will work. Election should fuel evangelism because now we know it's not my convincing words. Paul will say that in the same text where he said, I came in fear and in trembling. He says it wasn't with persuasive words, but in the power of God. What does that mean? That Paul didn't evangelize with persuasive words, but with power. It is the power of God to steamroll any sinner in his path. Their objections and their resistance and their unbelief all fall flat when grace is launched at the heart of the unbelieving sinner. Knowing that God can save someone like Paul, who in his own testimony to Timothy, he says, I was the chief of sinners, but God showed mercy to me so that in that display of mercy, you would see this is what God does. Nothing stands in his way. So God tells Paul, Paul, I have many people who will be saved. And what did this do for Paul? Did it encourage him? Verse 11 gives us Paul's response. He stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Up until this point, we've read of weekends, 
maybe a couple of weeks in the synagogue, month or two at best. And now with this assurance from God and this bolstering of his faith in the face of fear, Paul sets up tent, kind of figuratively and literally. And he camps out here and he says, I'm staying. Nothing will stop my evangelistic mission here. And for a year and a half, he's pursuing unbelievers. Knowing that God can save anyone in any culture, from any background, with any problems, out of any stark unbelief, is the great hope of missions and evangelism. Knowing that God can save anyone that you talk to this week is the hope you need to share the good news. And frankly, this is proven true in history. Listen to just a, a spattering of names from church history who rested in God's election, openly resting in that truth, and thus were what we would call our heroic missionaries of the church. John Bunyan, with his great story of the Pilgrim's Progress, a great gospel track laid at the feet of millions of readers, was convinced that God saves sinners, therefore I can share the gospel. Matthew Henry, the great preacher commentator that nearly everyone turns to, we want to know what he says, but they don't realize that he spoke gospel and he bled gospel because he was convinced of God's sovereignty and salvation. George Whitfield, the greatest revival preacher of England. William Wilberforce, the great abolitionist. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest evangelistic preacher in the last 200 years. These are men who were convinced of the doctrines of grace, beginning with sinners are only saved if God in his mercy reaches out to them. Charles Spurgeon, when he dedicated the Metropolitan Tabernacle, that great fortress building of the proclamation of the gospel in, modern, in London, dedicated that building with five guest preachers. And the first one's assigned topic was total depravity. The second one's assigned topic was, and you can guess the rest of the letters of the tulip, eventually one of them was focused on that doctrine of election. Everyone loves Spurgeon. Everyone realizes he gave the gospel everywhere and in every sermon, sometimes in rather poor exegesis. But it's almost like it didn't matter. Any text could become a gospel sermon to Spurgeon. And he was convinced that he could give the gospel anywhere and everywhere because God saves sinners. Jonathan Edwards, the great American philosopher slash preacher. David Brainerd, his son-in-law, missionary to the American Indians. William Carey, the father of modern missions, who gave his life to missions in India. Adoniram Judson, who gave his life in Burma. All of them went because they were convinced that God has said there are more sheep to be brought into the fold. D. James Kennedy in our modern era gave us that great evangelistic program, EE, Evangelism Explosion. It, it, it reshaped evangelism in the church in the 70s and 80s, convinced of the doctrine of God's election. So what do we do? Sit back and wait for God to save? 
No, he spent his ministry preaching the gospel and developed gospel tools. John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, anyone you listen to the radio. Frankly, you can hear enough from Chuck Swindoll that he knows enough to know God is sovereign in salvation. Whether or not he wants to admit it uh, is another thing. The church has blossomed in their missions and evangelism with the confidence God is with us and God is still saving sinners. God is not done saving. Jesus' words are, I have more sheep yet to be brought into the fold. And this is what Peter says when he tells us in his letter of those that God is going to judge. Their their unbelief and their rejection will bring them certain doom, but contrast that, God's judgment on the unbelievers, Peter says, but God is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. People bring up this verse and they say, see, he's not willing that any perish. And I say, but what does the first part of the text say? He is perfectly willing to judge those who are in unbelief. He's not willing that any of his sheep that are still outside of the fold should perish, but that they should all come to repentance. Otherwise, you have a contradiction. He is going to judge the unbeliever and is perfectly willing and able to do it, and yet he's not willing that he should judge them for their unbelief. It's not what the text says. The all there are all the completion of the sheepfold. God is long-suffering. And he hasn't come back yet because there are still sheep to be brought into the fold. And when you really think this through logically, there is coming a day when a witness will be given and the last sheep will hear the shepherd's voice and a trumpet will sound and the skies will be split. And Jesus said in John 5 that the graves will be opened and the dead will come out of those graves and be judged to everlasting damnation or everlasting life. There's coming a day when the last sheep will respond and turn into that fold, and it's done. Because the long-suffering of God is not infinite. It comes to an end. God is not done saving sinners. So what is our task? Turn inward and believe God's promises to you. That he is with you, with his angel armies. You're not standing alone at the water cooler. You're not engaged alone over coffee with that unbeliever. There is the army of God's angels. There is the advancing kingdom all surrounding that scenario. God is with you. Believe his promises, that he's with you and that he is still saving sinners. And then, with faith instead of fear, proclaim God's truth to others. Believe his promises to you so that you can proclaim his truth to others. Okay, so we know from Acts 18 
that fear is going to be part of the game here. Fear is going to creep in. But we cannot be silent. We cannot stay being afraid. Because God is working in and through you, and because God is still saving sinners. Heavenly Father, make us doers of your word that we have heard today. Strengthen us for this task, for this privilege, for this overflowing joy of sharing the good news of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.